Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Thank you and welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We have with us Dr. Debbie Sutherland. Debbie, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and get started by having you give an introduction of yourself to our listeners, and then we'll delve into the exciting topics that brought you here today. Excellent. Okay. Well, as you said, my name is Debbie Sutherland. I'm a Canadian, and I've lived here in the Middle East. I live in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. I've been here for about 15 years. I'm the chief people officer for a large-scale startup insurtech company, and um, it's amazing. I've done most of my career with large-scale startups. I seem to gravitate to that environment of the new and the crazy of, uh, of, of startups and how it is. So I've worked in aviation, real estate developments, renewable energy, and now InsureTech. Um, I think my purpose, um, a lot of people who have landed in this kind of role is because maybe they, they're curious about how people think. And so I like this space because it really is kind of honing into how people think and act in large-scale startups to help make the business thrive. Because there's a certain type of person that does thrive in that messy startup phase. So um, what I've done is, since I've been here in the UAE for quite a long time, I really wanted to hone my craft quite a few years ago. Learn the theory behind people's behaviors. You can observe it, of course, and you can create patterns of thought of who you think, how people act in certain situations. But I got my um, master's degree in organizational psychology at Columbia University. It was fantastic insights in learning the theories that I can help as a practitioner bring into the the business. Um, But what I was really curious about is how uh, people think and act during times of ambiguity. Um, Because I did see that some people had thrived in that environment and ambiguity is not going away. Um, It's really on our nose now, obviously, with everything that we've gone through with COVID and businesses are not getting any linear or systematic. Um, So I did my doctorate degree and that was exactly what I, I did research was an exploratory study on executives' mental models and in conditions of deep ambiguity. So how do they think? How do they act? What was their blueprint? What was the commonality with all of these people? Because I really wanted to know, I had no idea of why some people were thriving and some people maybe didn't. And that became the premise of my research. Gosh, that's so incredible. So many things that you said that I wanna to touch upon. Chief people officer sounds like a, uh, a big responsibility, but something that you have diverse experience with. And, and being in Abu Dhabi, I, I, you know, I think when, when we were first communicating, um, uh, you know, I had just moved from Hawaii and to, to think about those time zone differences and how that would have been. So a little bit easier to connect, I think, uh, I think. Uh, now that I'm in Florida, I have to kind of get my bearings and shift where I, where the, everything in the world is in relation to me. 
You mentioned things so quickly, though. You said aviation, renewable energy, and kind of just listed a slew. Could you could you <laughs> repeat that or give us a little bit, elaborate a little bit on what those diverse uh, um, areas that you have experience with have been? Sure. I think I'll start with Canada, you know, as a young professional. Um, I was in aviation and, and I was part of two different airline startups. Uh, one more of a charter that was around the world and the other one was a mainstream Canadian carrier that was started um, in Calgary, Alberta, WestJet, if I can give a plug to them. So I was um, there during their startup days um, and I could see, it was amazing. I was just a sponge looking and seeing how people operate um, one of the things I did notice that most of the arguments that happened in the, in the corporate world were about, I think, I, can, I have the vocabulary now to maybe analyze it, but it was um, miscommunications. Either you weren't giving enough information or you didn't upward or downward across the business and people got upset because they misinterpreted the information. There was unclear information, no information. And I said, oh, my God, if I do a master's degree someday, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to learn about this a little bit um, more um, because it kind of shocked me of how many arguments and disagreements do happen in this professional world. Um, but then we moved over here to the Middle East and um, I started with a, um, a renewable energy company um, and it was really diverse. We had at least five different business models intersecting with dignitaries scientists, academic um, research centers um, from around the world. So I was in charge of um, organizational kind of development. I was in HR first, but then I went into the strategy team and then working with the multiple stakeholders. It's very interesting. It was dynamic. Um, and then I went for another startup, real estate development, and we were operating in seven countries, you know, working with other countries on the same business model is just as complex as different business models. And, you know, of course you have to change things, how you do things, how you understand things, the communication as well. And then now um, I've landed with a great executive group with InsureTech and we're here to disrupt the, the market in the UAE. Ooh. <laughs> it seems like you're I'm ominous. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, foreshadowing. Seems like you are somebody who's always up for a, a challenge, and you use this word yourself dynamic, um, dynamic environments. Um, I don't know that you use it about yourself, but I think it might apply the way that I'm hearing you describe these experiences and so forth. Um, business. You know, when we think about business, um, myself as, a, as an educator originally trained and then as a behavior analyst, um, for a long time, I just, you know, I, I want to work with children. I want to work in educational and medical models. I want to do these sorts of things. I, I don't want to be a business owner. Um, and yet multiple times I've been involved in different startups myself and have found like, oh, um, maybe... Maybe I don't want to be the, the person who stays there. I, maybe, maybe I do thrive in that chaos, um, which is mm -hmm. super interesting and something I was reflecting on um, as I was journeying through your book. And so let's talk about this book. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. The Business of Ambiguity. Um, my first question for you is really what prompted you to write this book and what needs does it address? 
You know, um, I was driven for the purpose of this book because I was actually frustrated. Um, you know, we can take leadership courses and they're wonderful. You come back refreshed, invigorated, got some great insights. You might even come back with a new project for the, for the company. But what typically happens is you come back after three days of, you know, having these wonderful thought, thought partners in this room in a safe zone and you come back and your line managers, where are you? Here's what's happened. Here's the, the work that has piled up since you've been gone. And two things typically happen. Either you, you can't make change because your line manager is too busy and doesn't have time to hear of your new insights, or eventually you become frustrated yourself and leave. Um, or, or sorry, the third one, I guess, is um, you just fall back into your old habits. So that sense of frustration is leadership courses are fantastic and you absolutely need them because they do help people think in a different way. But I was coming into this with an academic practitioner's mindset. We need these messages to be cascaded across the entire business. So while I was doing this research for um, the business of ambiguity, I really wanted to make sure we had practical applications so that it can be disseminated um, in, in different ways, either from the C, from the C level, the, the executives who have these key um, messages, as well as from the talent teams. So I kind of had a dual audience for this book. But of course, anyone who picks it up and is wanting to, you know, kind of hone their craft a little bit as well and be a great leader, they can also use some of these, um, the five thinking strategies that came out from the, from the research. You know, just looking at the the forward when I first opened the book, I was really impressed to see the different um, uh, people uh, who had, you know, endorsed or, 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 you know, talked about your book. We're talking about the CEOs of banks and airlines and large, you know, different organizations. To me, that immediately drew me in, not because of their titles, but because of the diversity and where they're working and these different businesses, as you've already mentioned. Um, things with aviation, renewable energy, and so forth, it's it's easy for people to say this doesn't apply to me, or that only applies to education, or that only applies to this. Um, as I was mentioning, you know, uh, like I said, I, I didn't think I wanted to be a business owner, and many people in the behavior analytic world might, might have once said that, but that's now um, just not the reality. So many people have started these organizations and businesses, and we have a lot of the organizational I think tools um, and as as behavior analysts, but we may not be trained with that mindset. And how do you shift and think about these different things? Um, I think is is really important. You know, Debbie, in your book, in the first chapter, I think it was, you had a checklist, and so you were just mentioning being practical. And I felt like I was, you know, one chapter in, and I was already filling things out and reflecting. That to me does show what you were saying that 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 mindset of approaching it with uh, action with actionable change. I feel you so much when you say <laughs> we go to these conferences and organizations, and boy, do we love those uh, conferences. I think I've been to like six this year. Come back inspired, and there's these gaps. There's this inability sometimes to to translate that into change, <clears throat> as you were just mentioning. Now, you said there were five key thinking and business strategies, and I know from uh, having gone through and looking at some of these, what, what some of those are that you've outlined, 
But the first one that stood out to me was taking a big picture approach or perspective. Do you mind describing that for our listeners and what that looks like? Sure. I'll just back it up just a little bit on how this came about. You know, I was really, I had, as I mentioned earlier, it was an exploratory study. So I had three overarching questions that I wanted to know, really, is what what types of beliefs, behaviors, and principles of business executives who, are, who work in these conditions of ambiguity? And then what types of experience and, and events provide that scaffolding in the development of that, that thinking capacity? And then what relationships, systems, and elements in the environment um, also help build that uh, ambiguity mindset capacity? So if you're looking at me, if I was on video, it would be like kind of my hands are around my head, you know, like, how do I think cognitively? And then what's happening around me? And then wider arms of what's in the environment that can help me. So I had three questions uh, along that aspect, but you're absolutely right. When I was doing all of the coding of these um, semi-structured interviews with these executives, I'll tell you one of the interesting things that did not show up in the research not once, not once did they say that they can, they can thrive in ambiguity because of their technical knowledge. And I was like, ah, the absence of that one code was very insightful. They were all these power skills of how they think and act. But to going back to your point, the first code that came out was um, critical thinking for, for um, powerful insights or critical reflection for powerful insights, which is more than just a reflection per se. Like we always reflect. We you know that was a crappy meeting. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what happened, but it didn't go well and I feel badly and I definitely don't want that to happen again. But critical reflection is when you really go back there and did I even know who the stakeholders were in the room? Did I even pay attention to what was going on with them? or the, the CEO's key pain point, or something that happened previously that I might or might not have been aware of? Did I even pay attention to how I was coming across, how people were listening to me? Any of those little baby red flags, and so that you can obviously create better change for the future. So that's, you have to have a, a reflection and the decision that you were going to do a behavior change in the future. So that came out as the first thinking and behavior code the strategy wow thanks thank you for giving us that that context in particular i think the idea and the concept of of getting into the minds if you will of so many different business executives is so um fascinating so fascinating and it is interesting what the data will tell you and what we thought it might tell us you know when i was reading through that section about not getting sort of lost in the weeds and having that big picture perspective and being beyond outside ourselves and not just reflecting, but like you, as you mentioned, that real critical reflection, I was thinking about situations I had been in. Like, I think this is going to conjure up for people a lot of experiences maybe they've had and they might see themselves or other people they've worked with. And one thing that that section in particular made me think about was, um, in a previous organization where I had worked, we had the executive team and um, sometimes they would go into the locations or the individual uh, clinics and somebody would say, here's a problem in front of me. And they would, and this is like at the CEO level, 
um, or uh, somewhere in that, in that executive uh, tier. And they would go, oh, let me solve that for you. And they would mm -hmm. want to solve that problem without realizing that by doing that, they had just created 10 or 15 other problems because while you were solving what was directly in front of you, you were not necessarily aware of all of the intersections and the complex pieces of that. And um, we used to have these discussions of like, that's when you need a 30,000 foot level. Um, not You don't need to be necessarily lost in the weeds. Now, um, I think also though, you are really talking about something much deeper, which is, I think very hard for people, we're humans mm. to critically reflect, to be uncomfortable and to potentially admit failure or deficits in our repertoires. Um, did that come up when you were interviewing these executives? How, how did you handle, how did they handle uh, uh, ego, I guess, or things that felt really um, sensitive? Right. So in terms of these executives, I think they had obviously honed their craft over time that they had to do this to find the next best step. That's self-awareness. Um, but you actually are leading into the second um, strategy, thinking and behavior strategy that came out was adaptable mental models. Now, what happens typically with executives who've been in your position for a long period of time and have all these amazing work experiences, they do get something into um, we call a competency reps or the expert mindset. And so that's okay when business is going well, but it creates that deep thinking rut when you're in these messy um, situations, whether it's not the product launch is going to fail, you know that now because the, the cues are coming in or the brief is incorrect or you're going to go through a merger or an acquisition. Um, you know, so you have to um, be able to seek other people's perspectives because this is a unique situation. So your expert mindset might get you through it fast, but it might not be the right direction. Um, and that's the paradox of businesses as well, is we tend to make decisions very, very fast, like you were talking about. You've created four more sys systemic issues, um, but you don't know that yet because there's a time and a space before that cause and effect happens. So really bringing in that foundation of systems thinking is helpful because your business is always shifting and focusing on different elements. And that's why you need that wide angle lens to tap into it and other people's perspectives because you don't always know what's going on in your business. Behaviors change. You show up to work every say, day differently. I said, why? <laughs> we don't always know what's going on in our brains, let alone in our business. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. And I was like, oh, these adaptable models. Uh, yeah. Being adaptable is certainly a skill. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's so uh, important to hear that, you know, the people who you were interviewing and working with, like they were successful. They had honed in on these things. And yet there were times in their careers where they're going to be unsuccessful, but they had already encountered that, right? So it's a yes. lot of that awareness and that reflection. Um, you, you know, know from, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say in, in a couple of my presentations, I, I ask the teams and I'm like, who has ever been called stubborn? You know, and then some people will sheepishly put up their hands and say, oh, my wife or my spouse or somebody has called me stubborn, but, or maybe not me, but definitely I know a few people, right? Um, so, um, and being stubborn is okay, in a sense, 
um, because you have a point of view and it's a strong point of view based on something, right? Your experiences um, or the data that you have, the information that you have. But it's only when there's an overwhelming sense um, of data that's contrary to your point of view, that's when you're in that stubborn zone where it becomes a barrier. Um, executives fall into this all the time. Uh, we, I, and I'm assuming we all do. Um, and that's why you got to continually hone to ask people for um, perspectives of what's going on um, so that you can get outside of your own mindset or your own way of doing things. Yeah, the own way in which we approach things. You know, I've read um, once or it's great folklore, I'm not sure, but the best way to get meaningful feedback is to seek it out. And especially I think when you are in a superior role or you are somebody's boss or you're an executive, um, people might be a little bit more hesitant to provide that feedback. Um, but when you create the space, and my experience has been when I create a space where people feel safe to share it, but also I'm asking for it, um, I, I get I get a lot of feedback. <laughs> and um, Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I have information that I can hopefully do something with. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, uh, one strategy, but I don't, don't certainly assume that it's enough on its own. Um, you know, we've talked about creating awareness, reflecting, um, these pieces here. I think there's a lot of discomfort with that. And you had, I think mentioned it's about developing comfort in the unknown. And that's the place where people feel the least amount of comfort. So how, what, what, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we develop that? Well, okay. No, I I guess noticing that you're in it, right? Oh my God. I I don't have enough information. The the report is due to the executive tomorrow. I don't have enough information. Um, You've moved, you lived, you said you lived in Hawaii for seven seven years and then you moved to a new state. That's, that's uncomfortable, right? Some people love doing that, but even if you've done it multiple times, it's still kind of a zone where it's a new country or new, new, new state. Um, But what we found out is that you get better at understanding the uncomfortable space that you're in and you're able to kind of in that Zen, like going, I don't have enough information here. I know I need to move forward. Um, but I still going to ask as many opinions and perspectives as I can and tap into my stakeholders. So I have at least an, a well-defined, um, plan moving forward that I can pivot, which sounds so logical to do, but it's very hard when you're in that messy state. Cause what I have found out through the research is that we tend to get narrow in our thinking and we tend to move fast through that ambig- uh, uncertainty because we just want to get out of it. So we just make any decision. So just taking that deliberate pause, that's what I call it in the book, is just taking that deliberate pause and being able to scan your your spheres of insights, as I call them, um, so that you can just take the time and know where your next better step will be. That's so comforting to hear you say that the first step (laughs) is just to acknowledge this, because... I think that's in my repertoire. I think that's in many people's repertoires uh, is being like, whoa, this doesn't feel solid, familiar, firm, uh, clear. Um, and yes, you're right. Uh, I, I love adventure. I love moving prior to living in Hawaii. I was living in Boston. So I'm kind of like a ping pong. You know, I can just go wherever. 
but there's always that period of adjustment. There's always this, okay, I don't know anybody in this area per se, or um, now we've got to refurnish the, our, our house or whatever. Um, you know, we don't, we don't ship things necessarily across the world unless they're very valuable. Um, they can stay where they are. So yeah, I think that's a very helpful example where people might encounter this, not just within business, that they can then extrapolate that experience and say, okay, now taking that feeling, taking that moment, taking this thing and going, oh, here I am now also in business. Um, yeah. But and it might not always go well either, <laughs> but you do, if you're, you are reflecting, then you're learning from your experience. So there's that, right? Yeah. So the first step is just acknowledging we're uncomfortable. And then the last step is just realizing like it might not even work out, but it's information. And that information can help us, as you mentioned, pivot, right? And make those different um, decisions and so forth. My goodness. You know, it's interesting because um, you may have run into this in, your, in, in different corporate corporations that you um, have insights into, but it's um, companies need to pay attention to this one. For example, if somebody's been in their role for one year and two years, you know, they've kind of honed in of what, what the, the job is and it becomes very routine. And if you're not moving them into a new position after the third year or two and a half years, they do get in their comfort zone. And then if you pass them up, this is from the talent perspective or the line manager's perspective, they'll go, but they haven't done anything new. How can I promote them? They, they haven't done anything. And you can see where that's systemic issue is coming from they haven't done anything new because you haven't provided them with the opportunity to do something new so they are narrow in their thinking and it would be hard for them to move to the next step because we've placed them in that rut for a long period of time so getting your talent team on board with this yeah you should be giving stretch projects to people if you can't move them up so that they can start to expand um, their their expertise in different areas um, and become comfortable with that. So that's just one of the tips that um, I think are part of the book for as, you know, like a blueprint to help people get in this comfort in the unknown. Yeah, I, there's there's discomfort and too much comfort as well. I think that's what you're what you're describing and creating those opportunity for growth, for showing uh, their extended skill sets, for pushing them. If it's not a new position, you mentioned stretch projects and I, and I love that um, piece of things. You know, I think that that mentality of, of this is how we do things or why would we promote them or they haven't done something that then also when it intersects with the reflection of, oh, because we haven't given them that opportunity, that's where we can see some real positive shifts in, in organizations. Um, without somebody at the executive level, um, you know, embracing these strategies, um, or I guess what I want to, I almost want to ask this question rather than tell you my thoughts. Let me do that. Mm. Um, how likely is it that somebody who embodies all of these uh, reflective pieces of thinking, uh, how likely is it that they can be successful if the system itself is broken? I think they're going to be better able to make change for themselves. You're right. It is a partnership uh, between um, what you're going to be doing and thinking and um, acting upon and how the business is, is running and, you know, the linear processes maybe that are in place that are, might be hard to change. 
I think that if you are embodying these, these behaviors and thinking patterns, people are going to start inviting you into projects because they know that you have great insights. You're probably the connector within the business that doesn't value connections. They're probably in silos and people will see that as valuable. And if they're in a good business and they've got good leaders, they'll know who's valuable in the business. And that's where the value is created. Uh, that's the, that's the, the optimism in me who says that, <laughs> um, that um, you'll be recognized for that. And you'll find it. it it's it, interesting. I just did kind of um, a network analysis um, scattergram sort of for, for our teams to see who are the connectors. So it's, it's, um, it's an assessment that you can do within your own business. Because again, I was frustrated. I had been working in a company for over five years and I used to do knowledge sharing sessions. And I used to get frustrated when people were across the table and they'd say, hi, I'm Bob, I'm Mohammed. And I know that they've been working in the same business 50 feet apart, apart from each other for years but they had never stepped across the invisible line of where you eat your lunch or how you socialize. Um, so I, so what I did is I just showed that the connections, the nodes, the more you communicate through your emails and the talking and your Slack um, and finding information, connecting information is valuable for the business. Communication. Um, is, is often not the problem. Miscommunication or lack of it, I think you had mentioned, really is at the crux of so many of the problems um, that we yes. see in business. I love your optimistic view. I have, <laughs> have waxed and waned in my optimism and realism. And sometimes I like to say I'm, I'm an optimistic realist. Um, but it's, it's almost as if looking at the other option just isn't really my cup of tea. So let's look at the positive piece. Now, I think that if you are somebody who can be that connector, who can have those communications, who can get invited into projects, that's a great way to start to con contribute and also shift some of the culture within that organization or that system. And if you're reflecting along the way, seeking feedback and embodying all these pieces, and it's not working and it's toxic, then there's your information that that's not the organization for you. I think that, you know, being really intentional and thoughtful the way that you've laid it out is hopefully going to allow people to to um, sense things sooner uh, and maybe allow them to to pivot within an organization when they need to um, well we've talked about a couple now I don't know if we want to list them all out everybody can go get this book for sure um, but I'd love for for you to share more of the the journey or the kind of next steps anything that you'd like to add about um, your exploration or those those five steps and strategies. So I'm I'm hoping the book appeals to a wide range. As we were talking at the very beginning, you just bring up that one point of um, I did do a presentation with um, ex executive coaches, life coaches, and um, all the different types of of coaches that we have now. And the International Federation of Coaching has exploded with a whole bunch of new coaches. And they found this valuable in a sense that, yes, you're always talking about the person, but now we've gone into the environment and the spheres and the experiences, which they found valuable because they probably maybe didn't, uh, maybe ask that questions to that wider range. Um, so 
helpful in that area. If people do like theory, I know that I've listened to a few of your podcasts, you know, there's, um, you know, it's about the behavior of sciences. So I did interject that there, hopefully not to put anyone to sleep. Um, that was what the dissertation did. Um, hopefully the book is a little bit more <laughs> That's dissertations do. That's what we do when we're writing them. Uh, my goodness. Yeah. No, not at all. But I was, I was so blown away, um, you know, by the parts of the book that I really delved into where you're talking about, you know, educational researcher uh, or philosopher, John Dewey. And then we're talking about sociologists and we're talking about, um, you know, Robert Merton. And then there's, I'm reading a few paragraphs down and it says, and this individual with, you know, approach to looking at through behavior analysis. And I was like, oh, there it is, there we are. Um, and what is, I think so wonderful about one, you have an incredible style of writing. Um, to me, it's similar to our conversation. It feels very much uh, with ease and that's what attracted me to kind of keep like, okay, what else? What else do I need to learn and know and do? Um, and it's been a while um, since I've immersed myself in, in a book like that um, or in a book at all. I've been reading mostly uh, uh, peer-reviewed publications and such. And I just, I, it was just nice to like have the sciences of so many sciences intersecting together in this like storytelling way that gives you practical, actionable steps. I mean, thank you because um, uh, being frustrated um, your frustration has created this reflection <laughs> for the rest of us. And sometimes I say, you know, through times of desperation can come great innovation. And um, it's, I think it's not just the wide range of who, who your book would likely be applicable to. And not just your book, the strategies, the thinking, the, the process, which is described in your book. But also, I think it, it appeals to a wider um, audience from my perspective because of how many different perspectives you included. Like... And that's where I kind of skipped to the, to the end and I was looking at, and I was really excited to hear it. I wanted to ask you about harnessing that power of having a diverse network um, because I feel like so much of it leads up to having this diversity of thinking, this diversity of thought. Um, but what do you want our listeners to know about that in particular? So, oh, um, I guess you just, need to be, if I could put it down to a, a, just a couple phrases is you need to be curious and not just what's in your space and what you're doing and what's happening around you. But if you are not stepping out of um, and finding other tribes to interact with and understand what they're going through as well, then you're just in your vacuum trying to just make change. Um, so for people, and it's not just corporate that we're talking about too, like your social network effect. I know I learn more if I've gone with a running group or I've I listened to a different type of podcast than I normally do. And then I have greater insights next time I'm going to a dinner party. And, you know, I just, so that's what the harness of um, strategic power for the diverse network is. Um, it's, it's well known now that having different nationalities within your business um, helps the business because you're able to innovate and tap into those different insights and values from different backgrounds and perspectives. It's tough though, because it, I feel it does slow you down sometimes because you, it's, we, we joke at work that I'd just rather do it by myself, right? Cause I'll get it done. But if you want to go farther, <laughs> you have to invite people along with the journey with you. But if you just want to go fast, go ahead, go fast. Yeah, you're going to get tired. Get go ahead. Space. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and so you have to query, you have to take that time um, to scan the, the insight, the spheres of insights and be curious because you have a point of view. Every expert, everyone has their point of view. We know that, but what else is out there? So that's kind of just my summary. <laughs> It's a fantastic summary. Um, I will mention one other piece, um, and then I just want to make sure we get your websites and contact information where people can learn more and find out about, about you and about this information. The dinner party, I'm not going to get into details, but the dinner party. And you like book. it? I love it. And it is so interesting because a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with uh, a colleague, uh, Ellie Kazimi. And we talked about dinner parties and I was driving, I remember I was driving her to the airport and I said, let me ask you a question. If you were going to have a dinner party, now it was different, but I would love to circle back with you and talk to you more about it because you enhanced what I had asked her in a question and then reflected on myself by, by your visual and by the, um, what everybody might be bringing to dinner. And so uh, thank you for that. That was such a wonderful addition to the conceptualization, expanded what I've been thinking. I'm going to call her up. We're going to have more conversations just over. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good. And I think if you do the dinner party every year, you would come up with something different because your friends have also changed. (laughs) Your friends, all of it. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. It would. It absolutely (laughs) would. Um, my goodness. Oh Debbie, my God, you just I, teased everybody. Oh my gosh. I know they're going to have to figure it out or, <laughs> or take us out for drinks or something like that. If you yeah. want to know more. Um, I really enjoyed our conversations and I want to thank you again for joining today to talk about your experiences, to talk about um, the journey that you went through to get this information. Um, I, I, I want to celebrate your frustration um, because I appreciate um, the solutions that I think it's, it's offering, um, and the reflection that it encourages. So with that, I want to make sure that everybody knows you have, your website is www.behaviorsandbusiness.com. Um, the book itself is called the business of ambiguity and any other information, shout outs, uh, upcoming events, anything you want to share with the listeners? Um, no, I just did a conference with the international Federation of Coaching, um, doing podcasts with people like you who love the behavior sciences, which is always amazing. Um, but yeah, if you just Google the business of ambiguity, it'll come up and on your favorite digital uh, bookstore platform and you can nab it there, the soft copy or the digital copy. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, for anyone who's interested in learning about Debbie, you know where to get this information now. And and if you're interested in learning more about behavior analysis, you can always check out www.behaviorbabe.com. 